My name is Paul, and I, I serve as one of the pastors here. And since I'm not our lead pastor, periodically, I like to share tidbits of information about me so you get to know uh, me a little bit. So one example, one piece of information some of you know, some of you may not know, is that I actually grew up less than 10 minutes from here, just outside Plattsmouth. I actually attended a, a three-room schoolhouse. And so when I was a younger kid and my parents owned a bakery in downtown Omaha, because I couldn't stay home by myself, every day we would drive back and forth on Highway 75, just outside here uh, of La Platte. And while it's a freeway now, it looks so similar to those drives 35 or 40 years ago. So every, every Sunday I drive down to this community of La Platte, it's like a trip into my past. I gotta tell you, that little tidbit, that little tidbit has nothing to do with where we're going this morning. I, was, I just wanted to invite you guys into some of my reminiscing on a Sunday morning. This second piece of information is going to set some trajectory for where we're headed. It has to do with how I interacted with the church during my early years as a Christian. See, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, but we didn't go to church all that often. My father was disengaged from organized religion. It was actually in high school through the ministry of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes that I heard the good news of the gospel, that, that Jesus died for sinners like you and I. It was then I surrendered my heart and my sin to him. But following my conversion, I had a number of areas that I needed to grow, still do. And one of them was how I interacted with and viewed the church. See, in college, when I was in college, I didn't attend just one church. I attended multiple churches. One church, I liked the music. Another, I was interested in the preacher. I liked his sermons. One church, I didn't like much else, but the college ministry program they had was, was really good. Another well, it was really close to campus, so I didn't have to drive that far. My choice of which church to attend was very much rooted in how I felt on a particular Sunday. So, so when Michelle and I met in college, one of the most important pieces of truth she spoke to me was, hey, we're going to have to commit to a church. So as, as we approached getting married, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, the way we navigated this was there was a church we were attending somewhat regularly and we, we knew that if we became members of that church, we would save money on the venue. And having a, having a pastor from that church officiate the, the ceremony. So that, that Paul and Michelle chose to become members of a church to save money, I'm sure does not surprise many of you. <laughs> I had this view of the church. What can it do for me? I did not properly appreciate or respect or revere the church. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and one of the Apostle Paul's primary concerns is the church of Corinth is reported to be characterized by division and strife. From the beginning, right after his greeting and giving thanks, he tells them, let there be no divisions among you. He's made the point, when you quarrel, when you argue, you might think it's because you're so smart and you're so enlightened, but when you argue about a particular position or a particular viewpoint, it's actually because you're immature. 
and you're acting like an infant. He's noted that while they have too high a view of leaders and too high a view of personalities and how people are gifted. They, they have too high a view of the different roles and different personalities in the church. And that has served to create division in the church because it is all built on the same foundation that is Jesus Christ. So this morning in challenging how the Corinthians interact with one another, He's going to bring to light, rather than having too high a view of the church, he's concerned they have too low a view of the church. They do not properly appreciate or respect or appreciate the church. So so last week in the passage Pastor Chris preached from, he described how each person in the church is a builder. This week, the Apostle Paul is going to continue imagery from the field of architecture, saying the type of building the church is, is God's temple. This imagery is going to challenge Christians at Corinth and challenge us this morning to properly appreciate, respect, and revere the church. Having a higher view of the church will reframe how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others. So two points this morning. Understanding the church is God's temple reframes how we relate to self and how we relate to others. If you have a Bible with you or if you use a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where the imagery is introduced. I'm I'm just going to start with verse 16. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. So as Paul surfaces this imagery, let's start with some observations. First, the you emphasized here is not so much an individual you. The imagery is describing the people of God collectively as one temple. So there are other places emphasizing the individual you, like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where rejecting sexual immorality is rooted in understanding God's Spirit dwells in you as an individual. Paul says, because God's Spirit dwells in you as an individual, don't unite your individual body to someone in a sexually immoral way. Glorify God with your individual body. We'll get to that passage in 2021. But the imagery of the temple is not emphasizing the individual here. The people of God are collectively one temple. Therefore, the emphasis is on the corporate you. So as in, for my Texas friends, you all, y'all. So think of what he's saying like this. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? That means, that means you need to consider how this, how this imagery refers to you as an individual because you're part of that, y'all. You're part of God's collective people. But you cannot disconnect it from how it refers to others and you living in relationship to others because they are part of God's collective people too. Which brings me to the second thing I want to clarify. Okay? Paul connects the people of God being identified as God's temple with God's spirit dwelling in them, dwelling in y'all. 
So rather than a particular place, God's Spirit dwells in a particular people. God's Spirit dwelling in his people is something that is encountered throughout the pages of Scripture. It was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. It was affirmed by Jesus before he was crucified in the final moments with his disciples. And it was recorded as having happened in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. So for the Christian, rather than God dwelling in a particular place, he dwells in a particular people. His people. So if you hang around First City Church long enough, one of the things you will hear us say is the church is a people, not a place. We do not go to a place to experience God's presence. We get with the people. Now there are certainly reasons to physically gather in a place with God's people, to meet together and to worship together. But as we've learned in this year of the pandemic, where we've been nomads meeting in multiple places, First City Church is not defined by the places we gather, but who we gather with and what we do when we gather. Because God's Spirit is encountered in His people, we need to understand Paul is talking about the corporate church as a people. God's temple is a people, not a place. Now, the the third observation I want to make is this imagery of the temple is fascinating and complex. We, we could spend weeks examining this verse because there are so many implications of this imagery. We could explore a biblical theology of what it means to be God's temple, describe how Jesus was God's true temple, understand how and what it means that God's spirit came to dwell in his people. It's only two verses, but we could use it to springboard into so many different topics of conversation. At this point in his letter, Paul is primarily concerned about division. So that's what I want to connect this imagery to. As Thomas mentioned, I'm sure some of you awoke this morning to the news that there was this shooting that took place in our community last night. At the very least, you're aware of all the headlines in the mainstream media and on social media about the way our broader culture is experiencing division and strife. In such a moment, we wonder, can differences exist in the church? Can the church be a place where Republicans and Democrats experience unity? And libertarians, I should say. Can people, have, can people in the church have differing views on politics and race relations and how to navigate the pandemic? Can the church be filled with people who eat gluten-free and who don't eat gluten-free? If Paul is concerned about division, let's reflect a moment on how division happens in a church. So on the one hand, there's large-scale division. A church divides into groups or factions or camps because of a particular issue. I mean, you hear stories of division over the type of music a church plays or who should be the lead pastor or should a church buy a building or give money to expand the building. A very real issue for churches today is this issue of requiring attenders to wear or not wear masks. 
So one group will affirm a particular position of church leadership. Another stands opposed. And that group that's opposed, they rebel. Stirring discussions of reasons such a position is incorrect. And then they refuse to submit by causing strife. That's how division plays out on a large scale. But division can play out in far more subtle ways on a smaller scale at more the level of the individual. One, one person or maybe a couple, they have an experience of hurt or they have a, an experience of disappointment. Their expectations aren't met. Maybe they disagree with the decision made within the church. Maybe they feel they've been looked over or maybe they disagree with someone serving in a leadership role. Maybe they disagree with the philosophy of the youth ministry or they simply feel disconnected like they don't have friends or do not have people to do life with in, in their church. Feelings of disappointment grow to dissatisfaction. In centuries past, when there was only one church to attend, dissatisfaction could result in people causing division within the church. Now dissatisfaction can simply lead people to depart. First, the person departs mentally. They're less engaged. Then they depart spiritually. Losing faith, the church will be used by God for their growth. Finally, they depart physically. They, they stop participating in gospel community life and stop attending Sunday morning gatherings altogether. And maybe they eventually depart to another church or maybe they avoid it altogether. That's how division plays out on a smaller scale. Now, I should clarify, there are valid reasons to leave a church. Differences in doctrine, issues rooted in the moral failure of leaders, churches that are more reflective of a cult than the body of Christ. There are all sorts of justifiable reasons to leave a church. But perhaps it is far too common than it should be. But perhaps if we had a proper view of the church if we respected and revered and appreciated the way God's word teaches us to do it, we would be less likely to divide and depart over some of the things that currently drive such decisions. So, let's get into understanding how the church is God's temple, how that reframes how we relate to self. Let me read verse 16 again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Just a reminder, you are the individual you. You are part of this you all. So let's, let's think about how this reframes how you think about self. A simple understanding of the imagery of temple, it's a place people go to meet with God. This is true whether someone worships the gods of ancient Greece or ancient Rome, whether they are Buddhist and worship at the temple, or whether they are Muslim and attend a mosque to worship Allah. When an individual goes to that place, they are seeking greater connection with God. So it's a special place. You don't have to be a Christian to understand when Paul uses this imagery, he's talking about a special place people go to experience the presence of God. Now, for the Christian to better understand what Paul means in using this imagery, we go back to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, the second book in our Bibles, 
after the Israelites were freed from living as slaves in the land of Egypt, God instructed his people to build something called a tabernacle while they traveled in the wilderness. This was a temporary type of temple. So Exodus 25 verse 8 records the Lord saying this about the tabernacle. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the tabernacle was a special place people would experience the presence of God. Now there are actually 12 chapters dedicated to the description of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. I know for many of you who do a Bible reading plan, those are difficult reading days. You may be happy to know, to understand the imagery of God's temple, I've chosen to not have us read those chapters. The point of such a large section of scripture being dedicated to the description of the tabernacle is because it is such a special place. It is a holy place. This was this particular place where men and women would experience unity with God. Earthly people would encounter unity with the eternal God. After traveling in the wilderness, When the Israelites were established in the promised land, a different place became God's dwelling place, the temple at Jerusalem. For the ancient Israelite, this was the most important, most important place on earth. An Israelite would sacrifice resources, they would work hard, and they would so look forward to making regular pilgrimages there. Now there was a particular place within the temple called the Holy of Holies. The innermost sanctuary considered to be the dwelling place of God. And that could only be entered by the high priest after a lengthy cleansing process one day a year, the Day of Atonement. When Paul uses the language temple in verse 16, the word he uses is referring to that inner part. The sanctuary or cell of the temple, the holy of holies. That, the, the place God dwelled. So in being identified as part of God's temple there, there are some implications for you as an individual. First, because of Christ, because the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been made, we no longer need to go to an earthly place to experience the presence of the eternal God. I mean, you'll hear people say, I need to get back to the church, and they they mean a place. But his eternal presence, his spirit, has now been united with our earthly bodies. So that means if you, individual you, want to experience God's presence, you don't need to go to a building. You need to get with God's people. When your individual you dealing with guilt and shame and want to know you're forgiven and washed clean, you don't need to go to a church. You need to get with a people. A people that remind you to grieve sin, but that in Christ you have been forgiven and you have been washed clean. Second, because of Christ, there is no longer a lengthy ritual one goes through to enter God's presence. You don't have to justify your worthy before God because that's already been done. 
You see, in cultivating division, one of the things we do, right? I talked about this earlier in the introduction and how I chose a church. Or one of the things the Corinthians were doing is they were chopping up the church into individual parts. And they had too high a view of those particular parts. And they undervalued the church as a whole. We do that. We value being part of the church with the best youth ministry or the best Sunday morning worship, or the best that's growing the most and has the best name. You know, when a gospel community multiplies, you very much see this play out. There's a a desire to be with the best leaders or the best people or who we label the best people rather than where God might place us to serve others the most. Paul's saying you don't need to chop up the church into parts or overvalue aspects you don't need to be jealous of others. You don't need to be envious of others. You don't need to be compare, or you don't need to compare. I need you to look at me, Christian. I need you to hear me, Christian. If the temple was the most important place on earth, if the holy of holies was something so precious only the high priest could enter once a year, Paul is affirming that is your value in the eyes of the Lord in being part of the church as a whole. And so you have nothing to prove. This is how understanding the church is God's temple reframes how we relate to self. Now, now let's talk about how understanding the church is God's temple reframes how we relate to others. One of the reasons people looked forward to going to the temple at Jerusalem was because it declared the story of God's relationship with his people. As we mentioned, at the temple, priests served as God's representatives. On behalf of God's people, they would express thanks and confess sin and give praise to God. And only they, only they would enter particular places and perform sacrifices. These sacrifices were necessary because rather than live according to his ways, God's people chose to live in disobedience. But the existence of the priests and the sacrificial system declared God had provided a way for his people to be redeemed. When the blood of the sacrifice was spilled, atonement for the sins of men and women was made, and God's people were declared to be clean. The temple proclaimed God did not abandon his people. He did not separate from them. Rather, he redeemed and rescued them. And this temple ritual, it brought together people from across the globe with different stories of sin and suffering. They came from many nations. They had different status in the community and different vocations, men and women, young and old. In spite of their differences, they were united in having been rescued and delivered by their God. Now, we sometimes reduce how we relate to others in the church to how we are different. Our different backgrounds, our different genders, our different ages, our different marital status, our differing viewpoints on politics or schooling or race relations. Sometimes we reduce relating to others based on how they've hurt us or disappointed us rather than relating to others as God's temple. 
rather than experiencing unity and how we've been rescued and delivered and united to one another and with God, we reduce relating to them, focusing on differences. Many of you know how historians tell the story of what is often referred to as a miraculous event that occurred during World War I. Time Magazine recorded it this way in 2014. On a crisp, clear morning 100 years ago, thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers put down their rifles, stepped out of their trenches, and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. Most accounts suggest the truce began with carol singing from the trenches on Christmas Eve. Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described it in even greater detail. First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours, until when we started up, O come all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fideles. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. There was something extraordinary those enemy soldiers had in common that transcended their differences and united them, at least for a couple of days. In using the language God's temple, Paul is saying there is something extraordinary that unites us as God's people. God's temple is not characterized by division. God's temple, the place his spirit dwells, is characterized by extraordinary unity. His people tell the story of his grace and mercy, of being rescued and delivered by him. Sources of division and strife fade away in the midst of that. So one, one observation we have yet to make about, about this passage is how, is how Paul surfaces this imagery, we are God's temple, in the form of a question rather than a statement. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He uses this language, do you not know, multiple times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in doing so, he's saying, hey, there is something you should know. There is something that is true of you, but, but for some reason, it seems like you don't understand. It seems like you're not living according to the truth of who you are. So as you relate to one another, you're reflecting on the wrong things. In a recent Lifeway survey, people who attended church regularly indicated they spent twice as much time scrolling through social media feeds than in the pages of Scripture. When a Christian spends more time reflecting on the pages of social media or mainstream media or reflecting on past offenses, differences and sources of strife will drive them to divide and drive them to depart. I remember a pastor of a different church sharing a story about a small group in their church. The people were enjoying one another. They were serving together. They were being in community with one another. And then they became friends on social media. And they realized they had very different political views. One of them was more in line with the Republican Party. The other was more in line 
with the Democratic Party, those positions began to define how they related to one another. So they asked to be part of different gospel communities. When the church said no, they departed. Paul wants us to stop reflecting on the positions and perspectives that lead to division and to reflect on the truth. We are united in an extraordinary way as God's people. See, what happens when someone doesn't do what we want, when they don't agree with our viewpoint, we we tend to attack. We label. We accuse. I'll give you a simple example of this. Uh, My wife and I went out to dinner on Friday night. It was only the second time we'd been out since directed health measures had been implemented because of the pandemic. You know, I'm less concerned about getting COVID or someone in my family, but I am concerned about being a source of spreading it to others. So in arriving at the restaurant, the only place open was a a spot with two chairs at the bar, which was very well distanced from others, until two guys came and stood between us and the next two chairs over. So two chairs grew to six. Michelle and I were thinking of leaving, but before we did, we asked someone working at the restaurant if that was how they functioned. So they, they asked the group to move, but the group knew I was the reason it happened. So as they moved, which just happened to be the waiting area right behind us, one remarked, yeah, that guy's the mask police. Those, those people, they don't want to stand in at the bar. Right? This is how we move to attack or label others. It is one thing when people outside the church do this sort of thing. Right. A sort of attacking others when they encounter something or someone they disagree with. It is quite another when people inside the church do the same thing. Right. Those people. That person. And we make character assumptions about their heart. She is so mean. He is too prideful. Such behavior with the church is sad and wrong. To to the point that in addition to offering imagery to challenge the Corinthians to have a higher view of the church, to properly respect and appreciate and revere it, Paul offers a warning. In verse 17, he says this, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In in the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded declaring worship at the temple was not about worshiping at a particular place. It was about worship of a particular person, and that person was Jesus. Jesus is God's true dwelling place. He is the true temple. In him is the ultimate demonstration of earthly man and the eternal God. In him was the fulfillment of everything the priest performed, making sacrifices for the sins of the people that they might be declared clean and holy and experience unity with their God. Now, the church is not Jesus. First City Church, you are not Jesus, but there is a connection. The way one relates to the church, the the way one relates to others in the church, it very much reflects how we relate to Christ. If we are the type of person 
who destroys God's temple, destroys God's people, we're rejecting him. Such a warning serves to clarify who is and who is not in Christ. A non-Christian does not care about destroying God's temple. They have little regard for how they relate to the church. We can expect them to put others down and stir division and abandon others in the face of strife. As such, there will be significant consequences of judgment. A Christian will live differently. Preserving unity in the church is not optional or something they think they should be about. It's part of who they are. It's something they are obligated to do because God's Spirit dwells in them. Now, Paul does not say if anyone sins, God will destroy him. I mean, every one of us, there are sinful ways we interact with the church that damage the church. He says if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. When a Christian encounters this warning, they are confronted with how God weighs sin against his church. And they grieve how in their flesh they may have focused on self rather than the unity they have in Christ. They acknowledge sins of gossip and envy and strife. They long to grow at how they love others in the church who are different than them. They confess sins of anger and abandonment. They are present with one another and respect one another and they fight to preserve unity. And they grieve when the unity we have in Christ and in the Spirit is affected and is broken. One of the things I love about the people of this church is I have had many interactions about politics and past hurts and unmet expectations. It is the examples I have encountered of what it means to not let those destroy the church. And one couple acknowledged they wanted a pastor to function and act a particular way, more gentle, express words with more compassion. As they reflected and prayed, rather than focus on his faults, their hearts were drawn to how their unmet expectations were causing division in subtle ways. Another individual, after becoming animated and maybe angered about a conversation over politics, calls the next morning to confess his anger. You see, it's not that a Christian never does anything to hurt God's people. We do. But when we do, we repent. And in repenting, we serve as a builder of something different. This is what it means to be part of God's temple and to respect and revere and appreciate it the way Paul is teaching us this morning. Let's pray.